You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm well. How are you? I am doing fine. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is the Wright Show available on both uh, streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Aaron Mate, uh, journalist uh, at the Gray Zone, where you uh, do your, your podcast, The Pushback. Which uh, I recommend for people who would who would seek a non-mainstream narrative about world world affairs. Is that a fair way to describe your your mission? Very fair. Very very non-mainstream. Very non-mainstream. If they um, want if they want a mainstream narrative, do not go to my show. It's not gonna it's not gonna happen. No, you will only be disappointed. Besides, yeah. there are so many other places you can get that. So many options. Exactly. Why go to the trouble? Yeah. Um. So. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the White Helmets, this, uh, you know, this this group in Syria that people are probably familiar with. That, um, and this podcast that the BBC just did on the White Helmets called Mayday, which is interesting in its own right. I listened to the whole thing, but but uh, also, as it happens, was presented you in a kind of critical light, also presented your colleague at the Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal, in a kind of a critical light, in, in two somewhat different contexts, actually. Congratulations on occupying two separate episodes <laughs> of the podcast between the two of you. Um, now, I so, so I thought it'd be good to get uh, your side of the story, and also it'd be good for me educationally, because I don't know that much about the White Helmets. I know they've gotten criticism from people like you and Max. Um, there's been controversy. Uh, and it, you know, it's a very interesting story uh, because, for one thing, the guy, the co-founder, this James LeMessure, um, committed suicide uh, about a year ago for reasons having something to do with financial irregularities at the uh, at 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 the the group, um, well, he had started an, a big NGO and and uh, to support the group and had gotten a lot of funding for them over the years. There were financial irregularities. I should say it's an apparent suicide. He he fell yeah. to his his death from I guess <laughs> his apartment, um, and people think it has something to do with these financial irregularities that we'll discuss. Anyway, he's an inherently interesting character. Uh, and, and I think more important, this this whole thing, uh, you know, is about the way uh, wars are presented to the public. And that's what the, that's what the BBC podcast aims to be about. It, it talks about the fact that that measure that La Measure and the White Helmets wound up being, you know, part of the question of what narrative would prevail about the Syrian war and i think that's all very important i mean i i have my own criticisms of the podcast that i'll probably get to eventually that may be different from yours um but i i like the idea of of at least talking about how um information gets presented to the public as it pertains to wars because i i think a lot of people really don't appreciate the different forces that can impinge on that process is that all? Yeah, sure. I mean, I like the idea of talking about narratives too. I just think that in the case of this BBC podcast, it itself 
did exactly what it claimed to try to debunk, which is, you know, state-sponsored propaganda on one side of the war. Uh, in the case of the BBC, the BBC is funded by the British government, and they're covering a subject, a group that was also funded by the British government, the White Helmets, in the context of a multi-billion dollar catastrophic proxy war that the British government and the U.S. government were a part of. And I think that uh, partisan conflict there um, really undermines the attempt or the stated attempt by this BBC podcast to present an objective account of the White Helmets, because what I saw is them repeatedly uh, commit journalistic malpractice, not just on the White Helmets, but, you know, and this, this is where I come in. They also did a whole episode on the OPCW whistleblower scandal. That's, that's the Organization about. for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons at the World's Chemical Weapons Watchdog. And, and, you know, you and I had a conversation a while ago about that whole controversy, whether the Duma uh, chemical mm-hmm. weapons attack may have not been what it seemed to be and whether the OPCW at the, at the higher echelons kind of suppressed some doubts uh, expressed by its own inspectors as to whether, in fact, there had been a, a Syrian uh, sponsored chemical weapons attack. Um, and, and people can Google our names on YouTube to, to see that. Um, but but you're right. There are these two kind of different, um, if related, things. And <clears throat> it's the OPCW thing where you enter the picture. Yeah. Um, and they are tied because the White Helmets, and this is part of the critique of the White Helmets, the White Helmets have been instrumental in handing over so-called evidence to the OPCW. And in the case of the Duma chemical attack, and just to remind everybody, uh, the alleged Duma chemical attack, just to remind everybody, in in April 2018, uh, Syria is about to retake this town called Duma, which is close to Damascus. Duma is controlled by this extremist Saudi-funded militia named Jaysh al-Islam. Just as Syria is about to retake control, all of a sudden you get video of dead bodies, horrific, horrific videos and claims that there's a chemical weapons attack by the Syrian government. And one week later, in purported response to that, the US, UK, and France bombed Syria. That was in April 2018, one year after a similar incident in another Syrian town called Khan Sheikhoun. And the White Helmets, in the case of Duma, were instrumental, not just in gathering the evidence that was given to the OPCW, but they actually took part in a uh, hospital scene where supposed victims were treated. And Robert Fisk, the late British journalist, he went to that, he went to Duma shortly afterwards, and he found evidence that the hospital scene was basically staged. And a BBC producer named Riam Delati also did his own investigation, a very lengthy one. And he also found uh, evidence that the hospital scene that the White Helmets took part in was staged. And this is where my criticism of this BBC podcast, um, it's a good place to start. They didn't even mention their own colleagues reporting, which to me is just one of a number of incredibly glaring omissions in this attempt to, this purported attempt to be objective about Duma and the White Helmets, that their own colleague who covers Syria extensively found evidence that the hospital scene in Duma, which was used to help manufacture public support for uh, bombing Syria and for these accusations of a chemical weapons attack, that it was staged and that the White Helmets were involved. And yet in this entire 11-episode podcast series, 
about the White Helmets, and one and one episode of that series is about Duma specifically. Their own BBC College reporting is not even mentioned. I actually, I'm not sure I was aware of that particular piece. And, and in fact, one one thing that uh, I realized as I listened to this is that although I had paid attention to the OPCW controversy and had definitely gotten to the point where one thing I was convinced of was that it deserved to be covered in the mainstream media because there were real questions being raised from within the organization about what had really happened there. I didn't remember uh, the, the white helmets being even, even, I guess, allegedly complicit, but you're saying a, a BBC uh, reporter had actually found evidence of that or, or had reported it. His name is Riam Delati. He's a BBC producer who covers Syria extensively. He did a very long investigation. I should say in fairness to him that he believes personally that there was still a chemical weapons attack in Syria. Yeah. He just thinks, I, be, in, I believe it's in Duma. Theory. In Duma, yeah. He just thinks, I believe, that to maximize the public impact of that to, you know, to, for propaganda purposes, that some activists on the ground manipulated the scenes, including with the dead bodies that were filmed. Uh-huh. And he also believes that the hospital scene was staged. I personally find that to be implausible. And I think if you find evidence that something is staged, especially if, you know, and, the, you know, uh, I believe the hospital scene was even filmed before the uh, bodies were filmed at, at, at one of the locations where a gas cylinder was found. So if you have that filming taking place, and by the way, you also have, there are, and, and this gets into, you know, digital. Okay, I'll, ta- I'll tell you, but, why don't we? But, but you have a camera person who was present at both locations at the hospital where the BBC guy says it was staged and at location two, a, a apartment building where all the bodies were found. Okay. Why don't we, why don't we back up and talk a little about the white helmets in general to kind of remind people and set the stage. So mm. um, they were, uh, you know, basically they were the first aid first responders in rebel held territory, or at least in a lot of it. Right. So on the other side of the battle lines, you would have had Syrian state uh, civil defense, presumably tending to people, but the white, the white helmets, their activity was pretty much confined to rebel held territory. Right. It was exclusively in opposition held territory. There are groups that do act on both sides. In uh-huh. the case of the White Helmets, they exclusively acted on the opposition side. Um, and they, they came along at a time in the war when the Russian Syria side was winning. U.S. support for the regime change war was starting to wane a little bit. And all of a sudden, this group of White Helmets comes along. They're funded by tens of millions of dollars, a lot of money from the U.S., Britain, Canada, the Gulf states. They're based in Turkey. They're founded by this guy, James LeMessurier, who is a mm-hmm. uh, former British military officer uh, whose uh, record includes serving as a British jailer of Palestinian political prisoners who were jailed under a deal between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Uh, he also served in the U.S. Embassy in Iraq shortly after the U.S. invasion. And then he had gotten into kind of the security business after leaving the military. Yeah. And I gather he um, 
this group, at least the precursor of the White Helmets, kind of existed, right? I, I, and and I, that was my sense just from listening to the podcast. And then he came into contact uh, with them by virtue of his security work, I think. It, but he wound well, he, up. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. He's working for a contractor, a British contractor called ARC. And uh, ARC is, the, is a British government contractor that actually creates the White Helmets brand. And, and they're also employing James LeMessurier and he's working for them while that happens. He ends up leaving ARC and taking the White Helmets brand with him to his new outfit called Mayday Rescue. Mm-hmm. And, by the, and by the way, just w- one conflict of interest with this podcast, which they never mentioned, is that one of their researchers worked in Syria for ARC, this company that cr- essentially created the White Helmets, ran its social media accounts. And this was a researcher that was used on this BBC series, which are a conflict of interest that I think they at least should have disclosed, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, so, so yeah. And so the White Helmets comes along and all of a sudden they're, they're getting a lot of attention in the media. Uh, and certainly it's true that they do rescue people uh, from the rubble. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure they did a lot of good. I mean, you can't, you know, uh, it, and I'm sure that they put their lives at risk and a number of them died and, and, uh, you know, and that that should be noted. Uh, and 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 there was a time when um, they were, you know, much celebrated. Right. I mean, I think in most in most people's minds, they, they still are. But but didn't they there was a, do- a documentary about them. Did it actually win an Academy Award or they something? Won, it was very, very favorable. It won the Academy Award. And okay. the, pro- the problem with all this is that while certainly there is rescue work being done, what is being ignored is a very dark side of the White Helmets, which is that, and there are multiple videos now in which White Helmets members are taking part in executions. And it's very obvious that they work very closely with groups like Al-Qaeda. And there's by taking a, part, you mean removing the bodies afterwards or actually doing there's, the... There's videos where, where you know, someone in a uh, village is shot for whatever reason, um, and immediately after they're shot, White Helmets members are right there, and they, and they pick up the bodies. There's other videos of White Helmets members celebrating when Al-Qaeda members take control of a town in Idlib. Um, there's a video where a ISIS hostage is, uh, he is a British man, I forgot his name, but he is speaking, and he, he calls the White Helmets the um, fire brigade, the, the fire brigade, of ISIS and White Helmets members are there in the background. And you have, you know, other people have done far more work into this than I have, but you have connections between members of White Helmets and known jihadist groups inside Syria. And that makes sense because, look, there's been this widespread myth of these moderate rebels who were fighting the, the Assad government. That was dead in the water very early on in the Syrian proxy war. The dominant force on the rebel side of uh, you know, during the proxy war was Al-Qaeda and ISIS and, and other jihadist groups. That's who the Assad government was fighting. And that's who the White Helmets were working with. And you have uh, them also, meanwhile, they're, you know, it'd be one thing if they're just a, a rescue group in opposition territory. Fair enough. But again, not only are they taking part in executions, but also, and this is uh, comes from the reporting of my colleague, Max Blumenthal, who's done a lot of work on this. They're lobbying for military intervention, and they're lobbying even now for sanctions on Syria, you know, sanctions where people are, are in these long bread lines. There's a massive crisis. But what helmets are being used now to lobby for sanctions? So it's, you mean when you say they're being used, are they doing the lobbying or, or is it 
I mean, one thing they did is gather a lot of uh, a lot of like footage, right? Because early on, LeMessure, I gather, uh, had them uh, put GoPro cameras on their helmets. And mm-hmm. so they, they, they wound up with a lot of uh, footage. And inevitably, since they were on in the rebel held territory, it was going to be footage of people, uh, you know, killed and maimed by by regime forces. And, and I know they 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 put that to pretty uh effective use but but were there beyond that kind of thing were, were were the white helmets themselves actually doing the lobbying there are public statements from the white helmets in which they lobby for things like the caesar sanctions which have completely cut off syria from the financial system are directly aimed at targeting syria's reconstruction mm-hmm. white helmets members have been used to lobby for that and they're even put out statements to the effect of lobbying in favor of sanctions that are strangling syria what kind of rescue humanitarian group wants to promote sanctions on a country, especially after the war is over? I mean, it's over now. Uh, but now, to basically to punish Syria for the fact that Syria won the proxy war, you have these, these medieval sanctions being placed on it. The wet helmets are being used as part of the propaganda for that. And I should say, and my colleague Ben Norton at the Gray Zone has done a great article on this, where it recently came out, there was a, a trove of leaks from inside the British government, just revealing the massive amounts of money that were spent on propaganda to basically helped, um, help rebrand the opposition as these moderate rebels. And really, it was hiding the fact that these were brutal extremist Salafi jihadists like Jaysh al-Islam, the, the uh, extremist militia that controlled Duma. Um, and and also being used to promote the white helmets and basically craft a public narrative that could build support, if not for direct Western intervention, then at minimum for this continued, you know, savage proxy war flooding the country with weapons and jihadists that, you know, for a war that basically tore Syria apart. And the white helmets were a, you know, in spreading public uh, propaganda and all the videos, uh, that only focused on, you know, selectively what was happening to towns that were controlled by rebels and ignoring all the crimes of the rebels against Syrians in government-held territories. It, the White Helmets were used to help create a very deceptive picture. Okay. You know, at this time, it might be good for you to uh, just back up and say a little more about your overall view of the war, because the way uh, the uh, the podcast host Chloe and I, I cannot pronounce her last name. I don't remember how she pronounces it. And just looking at the letters, uh, don't give me much help. But um, the way she introduces you is as one of quote a select few journalists who share the Russian and Syrian state views on the war. Um, so what is your, I, I mean, is she right that, that your view exactly coincides with the Russian Syrian state view? And if not, how does it differ? What is your overall take on the thing? Well, no, I mean, the Syrian state view, I mean, I don't, I don't consume Syrian state propaganda, so I don't know exactly what they say, but I, what I know is that, and I wasn't there in Syria when it started, but certainly I know that there were protests at the beginning calling for basic reforms against a dictatorship, not even regime change. They were calling for reforms. I also know that contrary to the media portrayal that we got, that wasn't all that was going on. There were also was a heavy sectarian element and a armed element that you know led to the deaths of uh, police officers and soldiers. And that that was pretty much there inside Syria at the start, concurrent with 
the uh, you know nonviolent protests that, from what I've read, were brutally crushed by the Syrian yeah, government. Yeah, I think they were. They, yeah, they're, I mean, I, I mean, like like fourteen year olds were arrested for uh, anti regime graffiti, and their parents were told they'd never see them again and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, all that stuff I don't doubt went on, but what I think is uh, what I don't accept is this uh, pretty widespread Western narrative that conflates the, you know, uh, pro-democratic, you know, nonviolent protests with this armed sectarian element where people were chanting things like uh, Christians to Beirut, Alawites to the grave, things like that, you know, which has nothing to do with democratic reforms and trying to, you know, uh, change a dictatorship and try to ease the um, or to like lessen the abuses of a police state, but of regime change and bring bringing in uh, groups that were, would have directly uh, repressed and killed Syria's minorities. Syria is a very diverse country, and whatever you want to say about Assad, it's true that the Assad government oversaw a pluralistic system that, compared to the alternatives, respected differences. And, and protected Christians and Druze and others that were not uh, Sunni, which was not the agenda of the quote-unquote rebels who the U.S. and its allies were supporting. Yeah. So that's basically like my view. So um, it's and 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 no matter what you know, like no matter my views of Assad, it's just the point is I don't support the right of the U.S., the U.K. and their allies to flood the country with billions of dollars of weapons. And let you know jihadist fighters who are not even Syrian come across the border to fight and give them anti-tank weapons. And in the words of Robert F. Worth, the journalist at the New York Times, who wrote a great piece in 2017 called "Aleppo After the Fall," he said that if the U.S.-backed rebels were successful in the town of Latakia, where a lot of Alawites live, uh, that they would have committed sectarian mass murder, if not for the Russian intervention which actually stopped them. So I don't support sect sectarian mass murder. And that's unfortunately the side that the U.S. and its allies are on. That's just the, the reality. And I, I don't accept, no matter what you think about Assad, and I, I'm grateful I don't live under a dictator like Assad, but I don't support the right of other countries to come in and try to overthrow Assad by force supporting reactionary elements that would have, if, if successful, committed sectarian mass murder. Yeah. Now, my sense of it is just that, you know, seeing a, an insurrection brutally crushed is horrible. But what we wound up uh, contributing to by flooding the place with, with weapons uh, was more horrible, at least in terms of the number of people killed, number of refugees and and uh, everything else. Um, and uh, so just a kind of a sheer utilitarian calculus might lead you to raise questions about the wisdom of the, the intervention. Um, but uh, so, okay. So, so we've given people a sense of what the white helmets were and, 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 and La Measure, I guess my, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what kind of my criticism of the, of the podcast is. And again, it's, I come to it with not that much knowledge about the, uh, the white helmets and what was actually up. She she does address in in the podcast some of the things you mentioned, like uh, uh, 
videos of white helmets, uh, you know, dragging bodies off after executions. She makes it sound pretty limited in scope, like it it didn't happen all that much. And she she basically has them saying, yeah, we've been, uh, I don't know if the term is infiltrated, but a few bad apples have gotten in and we try to get them out, which um, for all I know is true. Uh, What what bothers me, I guess, is that um, she's taking such a kind of a binary view of the whole thing. I mean, you know, James LeMessurier, uh, was, I'm sure, subject to vilification, you know, because he was in the middle of a war. And, and, and you know, it's almost inevitable that, that important actors in the middle of wars uh, get vilified by the, by the side that they're not on. Um, and so people were saying, I guess, you know, he, that he was uh, running an, an organ harvesting operation, you know, via the white helmets and, and making money and stuff. And then there was, uh, uh, you know, as you said, there were people saying the, the white helmets um, helped stage fake chemical weapons attacks. And I guess in some cases would say he was orchestrating that and so on. And it's pretty clear that her, the pod, Chloe's mission is to defend him. I mean, I, I, I you know, she, she goes into it, I think, wanting to absolve him of, of those charges and I am willing to grant that he may deserve absolution of those charges. I, I, I don't, you know, but, but, but the thing that she misses, it seems to me is just the fact that, um, you know, I I mean, just the, as they say, the first casualty of war is truth. And it, it, it would just be naive to think that you could, again, the white helmets, they did a lot of great stuff. I'm sure a lot of them were totally pure of motivation and so on. I, I cast no judgment on them whatsoever, but it would be, it would be naive to think that you can take a group uh, whose humanitarian activities are confined to one side of the battle lines, uh, the, the anti-regime side, side, get them funded massively by states that are funding the anti-regime effort, namely the U.S., Britain, and other states. I mean, the White Helmets got over $100 million yep. from from these states. Mm-hmm. And it would just be naive to think that that is not going to lead the White Helmets to be used to at least some extent to shape the narrative in the favor of of the, the, the nation supporting the proxy war effort. You know, that, that, that shouldn't even be a controversial statement. And, and, but but she's never she never even quite kind of conveys that you know and, and then and then once you accept that then it becomes this complicated question of and of course the other side was trying to shape their narrative I mean that's the way these things are but her her approach is so binary and kind of manichaean it's like James LeMessurier good or evil some people say he was evil they're wrong and that's like the end of the story it's just I think if we're ever going to end wars. You know, people are going to have to look at these things with a little more nuance than than that. Absolutely. And I also think you can't accept the premise that we have the right to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars on proxy wars in foreign countries. I mean, like, what gives us that right? What what kind of a supremacist thinks that they have the right to destroy another country um, because they claim that they're, you know, that they don't like its government when it's clear what the geopolitical motives were to intervene in Syria? It wasn't because the U.S. or the U.K. care about democracy. If they cared about democracy, there are many other governments that they could change with far less bloodshed. You in know, in fact, you know, interestingly, I just happened to, a few weeks ago upon a Wall Street Journal piece from 2013 
it was right when Obama had made the decision to start arming the weapons. Um, and one thing it did was highlight the role of Tony Blinken in that decision, by the way, who will be the new secretary of state. But the, the journal uh, isolated uh, the entry of Hezbollah into the war as a significant factor in shaping the Obama decision to intervene. So in other words, once they could see it as a proxy war against Iran and Iran's proxies, that seems to have really upped the motivation of the U.S. to get into it. Right. But the only question there is, was that the intent? Was the intent to actually, in the same way that the U.S. got the Soviet Union or helped get the Soviet Union involved in Afghanistan, was the intent to actually draw in Hezbollah and Iran to weaken them because they knew that Syria was a key ally for them. Syria is a, was a way for uh, Hezbollah to get weapons. Well, I think and, at this point, according to the journal, Hezbollah was already involved. Uh, what I'm saying is from the start when, you know, look, you have Saudi Arabia and Qatar involved in, oh, I see. Yeah. involved in Syria very early on. Before we are. Right. And I, before we are. But, you know, look, I wouldn't put it past the U.S. to have been involved in this from the very start. We actually know, I mean, from WikiLeaks, there are tables showing that the U.S. government was meeting with opposition activists and was talking about regime change for a long time. And that's, you know, and that makes sense because Syria is a, either you're on, either you're on the empire side or you're not. In the case, Syria was not on the empire side. It was a counter hegemonic force. It was allied with, it was in the axis of resistance with Iran and Hezbollah. And look, you know, there was even a, an NSA cable uh, released by The Intercept a couple of years ago that showed that a, high, a Saudi prince was directing rocket attacks on Damascus and that there's a, there's a line in this NSA cable that captures the Saudi prince, or he's a, he's a, yeah, it's a Saudi prince saying, light up Damascus. That's what he's telling the rebels he's funding in Syria. Mm-hmm. And this was very early on in the proxy war, very, very early on. So you have involvement from the beginning of all of these countries that hate Iran. And so the question for me is, was the intent actually to get Iran and Hezbollah involved to bleed them? Because this was, you know, waging a proxy war is a good way to bleed an opponent of a lot of, you know, soldiers, of resources and, and money. Yeah. So, um, so let's see. So the, uh, maybe you should go ahead and, uh, b- before getting more into your issues, um, Finish the story. So uh, Le Measure, uh again, winds up uh, plunging to his death. I don't think we know all the reasons, assuming it was suicide. Apparently, one thing that happened was when he was evacuating white helmets uh, into Jordan, um, it was this, this, you know, kind of... Uh, you know, cover of night type operation. And I think he was directly involved. He withdrew $50,000 for to have pocket money while he was doing that. I think he was right there doing it. He apparently failed to do an official receipt. He later had a receipt forged. So it would look as if he had done an official receipt. Uh, the, I, I don't know whether that was basically the extent. I, I mean, I think he had been a little fast and loose in the accounting. Uh, judging by the podcast, we don't know that he was uh, embezzling massive amounts or anything. And it could have been, you know, sheer sloppiness. Um, and and I think on, I think there was another time when he, he kind of took out a loan from from his own organization and paid it back or something. Anyway, there were these irregularities. According to the podcast, he 
the night before his death, he was kind of, he, he had a conversation with somebody in the high up person in the white helmets and started to come to terms with how much damage he had done to the organization. Cause there was going to be a forensic audit and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if you want to add anything to what we know about uh, why he died. Yeah. Well, look, I have no idea um, how he died. You know, they say it's suicide. I think it's possible he was just on the roof and he fell. You know, I, I he I had taken sleeping pills. Apparently. He had apparently taken sleeping pills. Yeah, um, uh, not necessarily in suicidal doses. Possibly just to sleep. But yeah, yeah. But what we do know is this: he owned three homes, uh, a, a villa on a Turkish island, this apartment in Turkey, and also an apartment in the Netherlands. Um, he the money that they that they that he used was used in part allegedly for his wedding, a lavish wedding to another uh, director of his organization uh, named Emma LeMessure. Made it. Who's, who's a key source. She's a key source for the podcast. She's source, by the way, she's also a key player in the UK government's propaganda apparatus in Syria because she founded a firm called uh, IncoStrat. And IncoStrat was contracted to basically help market the Syrian rebels to the public and portray extremist militias like Jaysh al-Islam as moderate rebels. So actually, she plays a central role here too. And basically, um, a few days before he died, he admitted in an email that he had forged a receipt. And he also urged um, Mayday's board of directors and, and funders to not perform a second audit. Uh, and this was quoted in a report in the Dutch media, where he said that basically, if you do another audit, there is going to be more things uncovered. And that will be a gift to Syrian and Russian troll. So basically... LeMessure, whatever it was, was was nervous about more scrutiny. And I think, according to this Dutch article, uh, you know, the auditors also uncovered that the money he had taken, some of the money he had taken, was actually earmarked to go to rescue workers inside Syria. And, and this is something that we should stress. He never went to Syria. He was living very comfortably in Turkey and being profiled in the media and presented as, as this great humanitarian hero well, meanwhile, he was taking money that was actually meant for people risking their, their lives, living a very comfortable lifestyle. And where it gets weird is that this BBC podcast tries to claim that really all this was some big misunderstanding, that LeMessure actually had done nothing wrong, that he had forgotten that he had actually paid back the money. Uh, and their main proof of this is another audit that was done at the, after the initial audit that somehow cleared LeMessure uh, Le of all wrongdoing. But the, th- the problem with that is we've never been able to see this audit, and apparently it was commissioned or it was encouraged by the British government, which I believe had a very strong motive to cover up LeMessure's wrongdoing, especially if LeMessure is even more connected to the British government than we know. There have been rumors that he was an active agent. This podcast claims that he tried to become a British spy, but he was rejected, um, which I right. find curious. But, you know, who knows? Like, we don't know the full story there. But she the said, is- now, he did work in intelligence in the military, but you're right. She says he tried to get into MI6 or whatever it was. And, uh, I mean, she does kind of say, maybe to her credit, that he had a little bit of a James Bond complex. Uh, she didn't put it quite that way. But he clearly had this. He was saw himself as this kind of swashbuckling man of adventure. Which then speaks to how weird another thing is. And this is a narrative that's been promoted endlessly in The Guardian, in this podcast, where on the one hand, we're supposed to believe that this is this James Bond figure, this brave, noble man 
who was, you know, heroically, you know, tried to save lives in the Syrian war. But yet they also say that the claims made about him on social media by Russian trolls and supporters of the Syrian government all of a sudden caused him so much stress and really and literally helped drive him to his death. That's something that this podcast tries to argue. So which one is it? Is it, is it this brave, noble man who, um, you know, was a, was a key player in trying to save lives in the Syrian war? Or is he someone who's so brittle that criticism of him on social media helps drive him to his death? I don't believe that criticism on social media helped drive him to his death. I think that's a, that's a cover for something much more yeah. sinister. And it's, I, it, just, it just doesn't make any sense. I do think sometimes people who do grand things are unstable. I mean, sometimes they're actually, uh, you know, close to bipolar, you know, and it's during the, the manic phases that they build the grand things and then they have the doubts. But I, I do think, you know, it's not inconceivable to me. I mean, she did quote a number of his uh, friends who said they couldn't imagine him committing suicide. Uh, but uh, but anyway, so, OK, so he's gone. And, and your view of the the white helmets is kind of clear. I mean, I, I would guess that, uh, I mean, as I said, it's inevitable that a group like this is going to be wind up, is going to wind up being used in an information war. They manifestly were, I mean, I mean, especially once they're being funded by uh, funders of the proxy war. Um, and then I assume that different people in the white helmets were different and, um uh, and and some of them had completely innocent motivation. Some of them did not. I I don't know about that. But um, the I wanted to. Do you want to move on now to the chemical weapons issue? But first, I got to yeah. say one thing that surprised me about uh, again the reference to your colleague Max Blumenthal is I didn't realize he moved in such rarefied company. But according to the podcast, he convinced Roger Waters of Pink Floyd. <laughs> Right. That, 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 yeah. uh, I mean, they, they play this tape of, Ro- of Roger Waters like at yeah. a concert saying, yeah. I think he's at a concert. He says, you know, there's this guy who approached me and wanted to get come up on stage and give this sales pitch for this group. But I'm telling you, I've decided that it's a fake group or something. Now yeah. she says that Max convinced him of that. And if so, I would like, I would like free tickets to a Pink Floyd concert <laughs> from Max or something. I don't know, but do you know what the story is there? I do. Well, Roger Waters is a big fan of the gray zone and him and Max are friends. I don't think, I don't know to what extent Max's views on Syria's influenced Rogers, but I, Rogers has been pretty consistent politically for a long time now. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's funny, Max's views on Syria have actually changed, you know? Oh yeah. Dramatically. She gets into that a little uh, by way of casting suspicion on him. Yes. In a really sleazy way. I mean, first of all, she, she falsifies uh, Max's record. She calls him an aspiring war reporter, which I don't know where she got that from. That's like, that's never, that's never, you know, Max is a, is a well-known journalist and author. You know, he's written four books now. Uh, he's, he's well-known. He's never been an aspiring war reporter. He did have certain views about the Syrian proxy war, um, that were, you know, v- that were very kind of conventional. Uh, but that changed. And, you know, the same thing happened to me and many others who did our own independent thinking and reading after, consu- you know, instead of consuming just, you know, uh, mainstream narratives. And when you do your own research on Syria and you see the billions of dollars that were spent by the CIA on a proxy war, the New York Times calls it one of the costliest 
covert action programs in CIA history. Uh, David Ignatius of the Washington Post said that U.S. sources were bragging that their, that the forces that the U.S. backed killed at least 100,000 Syrian soldiers. So when you realize the reality of that, plus you have the fact that these rebels were not, you know, uh, moderate, you know, uh, uh, freedom fighters, but extremist Salafi jihadists, you know, uh, who came, a lot of them came from around the world, not even, we're not even Syrian. Mm-hmm. Then you just know that this is a brutal proxy war. And so, you know, Chloe tries to present Max as somehow being influenced by Russia and, and all this stuff. And, you know, and, and she, he has this unexplained turn, but really what happened was he just, he read and he, he applied his mind and his critical thinking and he realized what was going on. And since then, just like me, and anybody else who's realized what's happened, you've realized that this is this is one of the biggest this is one of the biggest scandals in modern history. This you know the destruction of Syria and how much effort and deception was put into waging this catastrophic war. So she tries to cast aspersions on that, and as part of that, she goes to great lengths to you know tell this tale that Max duped Roger Waters into speaking out against the White Helmets. And the funny thing is, you know. Uh, Chloe never contacted Max. Mm-hmm. Um, she never contacted to ask him, you know, even to check, fact check certain claims about him. Like, was he an aspiring war reporter? Um, and it's obvious that she was relying on just really flimsy researchers who don't like Max and don't, and don't like the reporting he does and wanted to smear him. And by the way, you know, I spoke to Chloe. We had a brief phone call. Oh, before, very- while she was preparing it? No, 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 of course not. No, no, no. Yeah. No. No, no. E- even though she made claims about me, she didn't contact me either. But afterwards, when I had questions for her, because I had a lot of questions about her reporting, we spoke briefly. And she told me that I, that, you know, one of the things I said about what she got wrong was I said that she never contacted Max to, you know, ask him questions before making these false statements about him. She claimed that she did contact Max. And I asked her to produce some kind of evidence, and she still hasn't. That was like several weeks ago. I'm still waiting, in case Chloe is watching this. I'm still waiting for that evidence. I, you know, but, you know, and that was a part of me raising a number of other questions about her reporting, because again, as we mentioned earlier in a podcast about the white helmet, she decided to kind of veer off and do a whole episode about the story that I've been involved with, which is the OPCW uh, Duma scandal. And she goes to great lengths to denigrate the veteran OPCW inspectors who we know now, thanks to leaks, were the ones challenging the suppression of their evidence. And there is a very strong White Helmets role here, as, as we touched on a bit before. Okay. So let's review uh, this thing a little bit before we talk about it. Again, you and I had a whole conversation on this once the, you know, after uh, one OPCW, uh, I guess, whistleblower had emerged and a second guy who's technically not a whistleblower, but uh, was very skeptical and was an OPCW guy in Duma uh, after his report had uh, had leaked. Um, so the the basic story is, I mean, again, uh, there was this chemical weapons attack uh, in Duma, and alleged I actually remember alleged alleged, alleged chemical, chemical weapons, weapons attack. Uh, I, I actually remember thinking at the time, whereas some of the chemical weapons attacks. Uh, seemed to make tactical sense from the point of view of Syria, like they could have, uh, you know, uh, this one was a little odd because by all accounts, these rebels were about to fold. They, they, they were done. They were done in Duma. They were going to leave. 
And it, it, I, I didn't get why you would suddenly, if you're the regime, introduce chemical weapons, give them a whole new grievance, give outside powers a new reason to intervene and so on. But in any event, um, the, uh, there were reports, there were videos. And I mean, the videos convinced me that something grotesque did happen. There are these in this, in this building where a cylinder was lodged in the roof there there are videos uh, uh of of a bunch of bodies including bodies of kids something something horrible happened uh, uh now as 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 to who did it what it was that's another question and the fact is when the OPCW sent an inspection team to Duma and and by the way uh just to set the political context Trump decided to retaliate for the attack before letting the inspectors do their work. So, so he had, America had already responded with force to this. Um, and one of the scenarios, you know, there is some evidence that American officials intervened to try to slant the ultimate OPCW report in the, in the direction of vindicating Trump by asserting that there had been an attack. But, but one thing that leaked was the first draft report produced by the team that actually went to Duma was quite skeptical that, 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 that what had allegedly happened, which was a chlorine chemical weapons attack had in fact happened. I mean, it didn't draw a firm conclusion, but it it noted several things that were seemed inconsistent with that claim. And, and then what happened was, uh, apparently the higher levels uh, 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 somehow it got kind of overridden and OPCW was poised to, to, to publish a, a kind of interim report quite at variance with this in-house report from the actual on the ground inspectors. And then one of them, the, this, the, the whistleblower who had written the, the, the draft report caught wind of it, complained internally and that led them to kind of tone down their own interim report so it wasn't as wildly at variance with what the what the inspectors report had said and so on and um and that's a big part of the context of this right yeah um and i just published a recent article at the gray zone with more details about this behind the scenes censorship and suppression effort to basically cover up what the duma investigators had found and put out a misleading report. Just a few words of background. You know, you'd mentioned that you you think some previous allegations were more plausible. I don't actually. I don't accept the premise. I think ever since Obama laid down the red, the so-called red line in 2012 or 2013, um, where he said that you know if, if Assad moves around and uses chemical weapons, and that would invite U.S. military intervention. Um, there is a, there was an article by Charles Glass, the veteran Middle East correspondent in Harper's in 2019. And he has a quote from a, a former U.S. ambassador to the Middle East that I think is very good. This ambassador says, the red line was an open invitation to a false flag operation, which makes perfect sense. If Obama is saying he's, he's going to bomb Syria only under this condition, that means that for those who want U.S. intervention, which at a certain point became the only way for Syria to possibly lose this, we'll stage a false flag. We'll uh, stage a, a chemical attack. And I believe that that's what happened in Ghouta in August 2013, where not long after Obama made his red line comments, you had this awful sarin attack that killed many people. Reporting later on from Seymour Hersh found 
all this evidence undermining the official narrative, uh, including that uh, Porter Down, the British military lab, tested the sarin that was found in Ghouta and found that it was not the sarin that was in the Syrian government stockpile. Uh, U.S. intelligence also concluded that the uh, that Al-Qaeda in Syria was working with Turkey to produce sarin. Uh, there were people arrested inside Turkey uh, with ties to sarin production. Seymour Hersh did a whole bunch of reporting, and I believe he was vindicated when Obama gave that interview to Jeffrey Goldberg uh, upon his leaving office. And that interview re- revealed that James Clapper had gone to him and said that the intelligence here is not a slam dunk. That had Assad gone to Obama and said that? had gone to Obama and said the intelligence is not a slam dunk, that Assad was guilty. And the not a slam dunk thing was an obvious invocation of George Tenet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, fast forward to uh, Duma. Can can I just interject something? What's so frustrating about this from my point of view, as somebody who hasn't had time to like look into it super deeply, is that you would hope that in 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 a democracy with a properly functioning media, like somebody would get to the bottom of this for you. And, 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 and I have looked into this deeply enough. I mean, I really have spent some time with these leaked documents. Okay. I've, I've really looked at them because I was thought I was going to write something at one point and, and I, I may yet, but I've looked at them enough to be absolutely convinced of the following. As I suggested earlier, it is a complete dereliction of duty by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal the major journalistic outlets, that they have not even covered the controversy. They have not. I mean, one thing you've alluded to, but we haven't said is the original director of the OPCW has said there should be an investigation. Okay, the only other director there's been, I think, or no, maybe there have been three. But uh, but but anyway, he was the founding director of the OPCW. He is outraged that Mm -hmm. this isn't being covered. And still nothing. New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal are not looking into this. Again, I don't know what happened. I think something horrible happened in Duma, but I think it could have been done by the rebels based on the evidence we have. I just don't know. I just wish you could count on media to look into this, but you can't. And the reason you can't, it gets back to, um, you know, the way in this podcast, she throws around terms like uh, pro-Assad and, you know, like if you raise questions, you're pro-Assad and pro-Assad is a terrible thing to be. So nobody wants to raise questions. And um, it's just. Uh... Look, Bob, this is why Seymour Hirsch, you know, one of the greatest journalists alive, a legend, why he couldn't get his reporting on Syria published at The New Yorker. His traditional now, is this home. when he parted ways with The New Yorker who was over he- Syria? It was, I think it wasn't just Syria. I think also they didn't have space for him being critical of Obama. It was great when he was critical of George W. Bush and Dick Cheney during that era. But then when Obama came into office, I don't think David Remnick wanted to have Seymour Hearst criticizing Obama carrying out similar policies around the world. I think that the space for that shrunk. That's my, you know, I, I don't have inside knowledge there, but that's what I can, um, that, that's my judgment based on just the direction of the New Yorker. And this was, I had to go over to Europe to the London, to the London review of books. And even after that, even after publishing his, his report, his great reporting about, about Guto, which again was subsequently vindicated by James Clapper, by the acknowledgement that James Clapper himself had said that the intelligence was not a slam dunk. Even then he, he, he had to go over to uh, a German publication 
to do his story on Kan Che Kun in 2017. Uh, Which is another, uh, another site of a, uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's why Max Blumenthal, you know, when he wrote uh, his, uh, you know, his latest book, The Management of Savagery, that's why there was a huge campaign to cancel his book event. And by the way, something that James LeMessurier encouraged, and he actually encouraged one event organizer to cancel Max's book. Why was James LeMessurier this humanitarian? Why does he care about what Max Blumenthal is saying in his book? It's because Max Blumenthal and others were puncturing the narrative that is used to sustain the proxy war, to justify the billions of dollars that were spent to wage this proxy war in Syria. Max was pushing back against it. So anybody, anybody who pushed back had to be vilified as an Assadist or, or a, a pawn of Russia. That's the only thing that these people can do is use smears and censorship tactics uh, and intimidation. And it sent a message across the media that unfortunately has been, <laughs> I think, uh, accepted by too many people, not resisted, that if you challenge the propaganda around Syria, then you're going to be smeared and silenced and you're going to lose jobs and you're going to be called an Assadist and, you know, no one yeah. wants that. And few, few people have the energy for it and, and the time. Like, you know, it's, it's, it is exhausting. I've had to deal with some of it. Yeah. You know? I, I did so, once have yeah. a conversation on this show with Max where I recommended that he moderate some of his discourse in ways that might make him less uh, susceptible to people who, who want to. Um... I do that. I do that. Max is more principled. He doesn't care. <laughs> and he is. He's actually more principled than I am. He, he will not compromise facts. He just won't. I, I just I, meant I just meant throwing in uh reminder uh, the to be sure paragraph to be sure he won't do it as a brutal dictator and stuff he won't but, do it he I'll won't, do no that. I know yeah I know I'll do that because you know to me I I, I want to reach as many people as I can but Max is actually it's actually I think a more principled position because he doesn't want to uh, pay lip service to disingenuous people and and, and doesn't want to grant them the right to be able to dictate how we criticize wars that we're conducting you know i um i respect it uh and he's taken a lot of heat for it and it's admirable what he's done i, I entered the syria fray way after him and way after my colleague ben norton and ronnie akalik and others who have been vilified you know while the proxy war was really in full effect they got you know ronnie had uh speaking appearances canceled mm-hmm. um because she was basically saying that she didn't want al-qaeda to take over in, in Syria. So when it comes to Duma and the OPCW investigation, I mean, you laid it out. They, they came back from Duma. They uh, wrote up a report. It was authored by a, someone who's now been identified. He was doxxed recently by Bellingcat, which we can discuss if you want. Uh, 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 not just we can briefly say that one thing they have in common with the white helmets is they get very favorable press in the West and people like you have doubts about them and their uh, in yeah. light of their funding sources. And they're also funded by by the same states who are waging the Syria proxy war, uh, like the U.S. and, and the U.K. Um, and so 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 Dr. Brendan Whelan was the uh, is a veteran OPCW inspector. Uh, widely considered its, uh, you know, its foremost expert in chemical weapons chemistry. He wrote the first draft of the report. The report didn't say that the incident in Duma was staged. It didn't say that, no, no. but it left open the possibility that it was. And it also, it certainly did not conclude that there was a chemical weapons attack with chlorine gas uh, from cylinders that were dropped from aircraft, which would then mean that it was committed by the Syrian government. So, 
After Whelan and the other team members reviewed the report and submitted it, Whelan discovered, um, kind of accidentally, apparently, that there was another report, a replacement report, being rushed out for publication that had taken Whelan's report, removed some very key information, such as the conclusion of some toxic, some NATO state toxicologists that the OPCW had consulted who found that, you know, after looking at the videos of the victim, that their symptoms were completely inconsistent with chlorine gas um, and had removed um, information about the, um, uh, about the presence of, of, of certain chemicals and all that and had added conclusions that the team had not made that talked about there being a high likelihood of that, that gas was released from mm-hmm. the cylinders, which with the team had not found. So Whelan wrote an email of protest that was later on leaked about a year later, um, protesting all these changes. And that was the opening salvo in this dispute. And it led to, as you said, the issuance of this sort of compromised interim report, which removed, you know, the unsupported language that the, that unknown people had tried to insert. And, you know, from what we know, Whelan and his colleagues never find out, found out exactly who had doctored their report. They just saw that it was being rushed for publication. Yeah, we should say one thing that happened is apparently um, there a second uh, kind of team of evidence gatherers in Turkey, right? Not on site, because what happened was the rebels did evacuate, as yeah. everyone had expected. They went to Turkey and so I guess in Turkey, there were a number of people who said they had witnessed the attack. So the OPCW had kind of a separate team there interviewing people. Is that is that right? Yes. And it was this team in Turkey. And by the way, and the, the White Helmets play a role there, too. And I think James Le, James Lemezer was even involved in that and facilitating witness interviews inside Turkey. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the narrative that emerged from those interviews is that everybody in Damascus or most people in Damascus, I should say, not everybody. But the overwhelming narrative from Damascus was that there was not a chemical weapons attack, uh, whereas the narrative emerging from Turkey uh, was that there was. And, and we, when you say Damascus, you mean the OPCW people who had been to Duma is right near Damascus. So, yes, so, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Damascus and Duma, the, the witnesses there found, you know, were were clear that there, that there, that there was not a chemical weapons attack. And some even talked about the incident being staged and some of them actually when this even gave a presentation that, that Russia put on uh, in The Hague, um, where witnesses spoke out about, you know, being uh, rushed into the hot, where in the hospital, the white helmets came in screaming gas, gas, and they started hosing everybody down. And right. a doctor spoke about actually that there was no symptoms of chemical weapons attacks, but also there were diverging narratives. And one of the criticisms uh, from the inspectors ultimately in the final report that came out, in March 2019, is that the OPCW kind of discarded the witnesses that undermined the allegation of the chemical weapons attack and, and highlighted or uh, or favored the testimony of those in Turkey who said there was an attack. But um, that's just one of many inconsistencies and um, and just glaring issues with the difference between the original report that the te- that the Duma team put out and the final report. Mm-hmm. And that final report, by the way, was put out. By the so-called by a so-called core team that ended up excluding all of the inspectors who set foot in Duma, as well as the initial report's author, Dr. Brendan Whelan, except for one paramedic who was on the team that went to Duma. But everybody mm-hmm. else 
was either in Turkey or hadn't set foot anywhere. And that was the team that produced the final report, which is just another aspect of the censorship that occurred. And another one was, is that just before the interim report came out, the inspectors, after Whelan's initial email of protest, they were summoned to a room where they were met by a U.S. delegation face-to-face, which is very unusual. And the U.S. delegation didn't have any like intelligence or privileged information to share, but they did just give this extensive uh, presentation trying to essentially lobby and influence the team into, into concluding that there was a chlorine attack. And the motive there was pretty obvious, which is that you know the U.S. needed the OPCW to reach a certain conclusion because that would justify the U.S. decision to bomb Syria before the OPCW even got there. Mm-hmm. Or not that it would justify it legally, but in the eyes of the public, it would. Mm-hmm. So um, that's just one of many acts of subterfuge and interference that happened behind the scenes and that, were, and, and, and that are, are documented in all these leaks. Yeah. Um, and then the other, there's also a guy named Ian Henderson, an engineer who went out with the, having gotten sign off from an OPCW official to, to get this report done, he, he went out and got experts to do a kind of a, a ballistics mm-hmm. assessment, I guess, about the likelihood that this cylinder could have, in fact, been dropped uh, from the from a helicopter and wound up kind of where it was in the condition it was in, and so on. And that report was was deeply skeptical, uh, and that got kind of uh, deep sixed. Um, the the uh, so in the podcast, Chloe devotes a whole it would surprise me a whole kind of episode to the this Duma question that's where you come in uh, you're not not cast in especially favorable light and and she so she basically interviews a guy who is identified as an OPCW official you think you see reason to believe that he was not one of the people in Duma one of the on the scene people I think it's very obvious he wasn't because he refers to the Duma team and he says they he says they had to wait for like two weeks before getting in and by the way, he uses the, the term like profusely. I, I noticed. You're, you're, you're starting to sound like an old guy, Aaron. Be careful. Well, you no, gotta... you know, listen, I say like a lot. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, it's a, whenever I see myself doing it, when I watch myself on video, I don't like it. But the fact that a supposed OPCW official is saying like a lot, he says like, we were there, like, like, that he sounds like a young guy, not a veteran <laughs> inspector like say Ian Henderson or Dr. Brendan Whelan. And he, so he's, he's given the pseudonym Leon. We don't hear his real voice, but we apparently hear an actor reading his exact words. Mm -hmm. And Chloe never says what he actually does at the OPCW. All she says is that he works for the OPCW. Is he a staffer? Is he a veteran inspector? Is he just a contractor? Because I do know that there have been contractors brought in to work on the investigations like Duma to help censor it. Mm-hmm. And so is he one of those people? We don't know. But certainly when he talks about the Duma team, he says they had to wait for like two weeks, which yeah. says to me that he was not among them, which means, which raises the question, what is his, what are his scientific uh, qualifications? What is even his proximity to the Duma team? Did, was he involved in the investigation? Um, I don't know. And Chloe doesn't give us any indication. What he's there for, clearly, is to try to denigrate these two veteran actual OPCW inspectors who are actually on the Duma team, one of them who even wrote the initial report. 
and also to try to dismiss Jose Bustani, who, as you mentioned before, is the OPCW's first director general, who it's so interesting. These two inspectors, Whelan and Henderson, they are so experienced with the OPCW that their tenure happens to coincide, to intersect with the first head of the organization, Bustani. And he vouches for their credibility. And he said, and you know, I interviewed him and he says that they were extremely professional and that, um, and, and that they had the highest integrity. Right. So and, that, yeah. and, the, and this guy, what is it, Leon, this Leon. pseudonym, yeah. says, oh, well, Busani's from, from an earlier era, yeah. back before they were doing these kinds of inspections. Um, kind, of, yeah. kind of what would he know? Well, what Leon doesn't know, or he's pretending not to know, is that Bustani set up the methods and procedures for missions like the one in Duma. So Leon tries to make the point that there weren't any chemical weapons attacks that the OBCW investigated back then. So what does Bustani know? Well, Bustani knows the methods and procedures that guide the organization because he established them. Bustani also knows what it's like to deal with a uh, with political interference from the U.S. because Bustani was personally threatened by John Bolton with harm. He, Bolton said to him, "We know where your kids live." When Bustani was getting in the way, excuse me, of the Bush administration's drive to invade Iraq. Bustani was trying to bring Iraq into the Chemical Weapons Convention, which would have been great for peace and great for the fight against chemical weapons, but it would have been awful for the Bush administration's war plan. So even though Bustani was unanimously uh, uh, um, elected to a new t- a second term, just shortly after that, he was then kicked out because Bolton essentially threatened the OPCW's funding. And Leon tries to pretend as if Bustani has, might have an ax to grind with uh, with the U.S. and that's why he's doing this, and you know he's just bitter. When in reality, the International Labor Organization ruled in Bustani's favor, said that he had been unlawfully removed. And you know what Bustani did with the money he got in compensation, he gave it back to the OPCW, mm-hmm. and he earmarked it for a fund for Global South countries in the OPCW, so that you know they can be uh, better equipped to carry out activities on their own and not have to rely on funding from Western states. And he also, again, another aspect of of his expertise, aside from being the first director general and setting up its rules and procedures, he also worked with these guys. We can speak to their credibility. Mm -hmm. Whereas Leon, who we don't know who he is, if he's even worked with them, what he does there, what his his credentials are. And he also makes some claims in the episode that that say to me, um, not that he's, not just that he's a young guy, but that he doesn't understand the basics of the Duma investigation because he tries to make this claim that Bellingcat first tried to make when it first, when it tried in this hilarious hoax against Dr. Whelan um, that tried to undermine Whelan's claims, but you know, that I showed were just ridiculous. We can talk about that if you want, but it's to me, there's something really quickly. What was the nature of Bellingcat's mistake? So Bellingcat. So, okay. So here's the, here's the recent sequence. So, uh, in early October, Bustani tries to go to the UN Security Council and, and, give, and deliver a very modest address about how he thinks the inspectors should be heard. He's not accusing anyone of a cover-up. He's not saying that the U.S. Uh, um, compromised the OPCW. He's not saying anything that I'm saying or Maxwell Nepal is saying. He's issuing a very simple request. These inspectors should be heard. The, their, their suppressed findings should be given a fair, transparent hearing. That's the essence of, of science, that you, you know, let all sides present the evidence and you judge 
the evidence on the merits. That's what Bustani was saying. The US, the UK, France blocked Bustani from speaking, which is unprecedented. How many times does, does the UN Security Council block a mm -hmm. former head of a major international organization? Okay, so that happened. Then Bellingcat comes out with this um, supposed bombshell that they claim vindicates um, the, uh, them and anyone else who claimed that Syria was guilty of a chemical attack. And, it, and they claim that it, it discredits the inspectors. They say that they've obtained a letter that the OPCW Director General Fernando Arias sent to Dr. Oh, right. And they say that this letter undermines all of Whelan's claims. And they also argue that because this letter was, was never leaked or it was never reported on by people like me, that either Whelan or journalists like myself have concealed the damning evidence. When in reality, the fact is the letter that they claimed was sent to Whelan was never actually sent. It was a fraud. It was, it was, um, it, it was. Well, was it a letter they had prepared and planned to send to him and didn't send or you, or you think it was just flat out fabricated? Well, I'll say this. The letter text that they published, it does show some. What knowledge. does it say? What is it that it says that Bellingcat Cat thought was, was so important? So they, um, it makes two claims and both of them are, are, are stupid. The first one is that they say that, uh, the, the, the letter text says, First of all, it's important to point this out. Both the actual letter that Aria sent Whelan mm -hmm. and this fake letter that was not sent to him, neither of them address any of Whelan's claims. Whelan wrote a very detailed letter to Arias after the final report came out. And, and again, reminder, Whelan is the guy who wrote the initial in-house draft report of, from the Duma inspection team yep. and later became kind of the, the, the whistleblower. Well, he's, you know, again, I, maybe that's I, not the right term, but, but, but the, you know, like, like I call these guys whistleblowers because, yeah. you know, they have exposed wrongdoing by virtue of the cover up they protest, but they haven't, but they've not spoken to the media. Okay. They, you know, all, all of their objections have been done, have been done internally. In the case of Henderson, he's spoken out publicly at the UN, but that's also an official forum. So, but yes, Whelan was the uh, Duma Mission's chief scientific coordinator the author of the initial report. And then once he found out that the report was being doctored, he was the author of that June 2018 email of protest. And so, so the letter that in fact had not been sent to him from like OPCW headquarters, what supposedly said what? Okay. So fast forward to March, 2019, a final report comes out. It reaches this conclusion that did not jive with what Whelan and the other team members had found, and it said that there are reasonable grounds to believe that there was a chlorine attack and that um, the source of the chlorine likely came from cylinders that were likely dropped from aircraft. Mm -hmm. The inference there being that this is the Syrian government's fault. Mm -hmm. So Whelan writes a letter of protest privately to the director general, Fernando Arias, and he outlines all of his concerns. He outlines his concerns about the compromise of the investigation, the censorship of the initial report, and his problems with the final report. And he points out some, some flaws in it. Uh, both the response that Whelan actually got back from Arias and the fake response that Bellingcat published, neither of them take issue with any of Whelan's objections, which I think is a very, very, a very key point. And we published Whelan's letter to Arias at, at the Gray Zone. Um, this fake letter that Bellingcat published says this. It says that since your departure, we've developed new techniques for the testing of wood samples that allow for the detection of chlorine gas. And one of those tests 
turned up a chemical named boronyl chloride. And that proves that there was a chlorine gas attack. That's essentially the essence of that argument. The problem with that, though, is that that claim is at odds with what even the final report said, the one that the, one that the OPCW put out long after Whelan was out of the picture, which says that, you know, yes, boronyl, chlor- boronyl chloride was found, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, that the sample that it, was, that it was found in was exposed to chlorine gas. It could come from other benign sources. So this fake letter is at odds with what the OPCW even said in its final report. Now, now Chloe in the podcast, by the way, repeats something. Yes, she does. She she says that, well, she has Leon say, or either she says or has Leon, or Leon says that uh, Whelan would not have known about this particular finding or, or, or something having to do with, with uh, the wood. Yep. That's right. Uh, But the thing is, so is she, is she accepting the fake letter at face value or what? Well, she's recycling the fake letters claims because I think she's using the same source. Because Bellingcat later admitted the fake letter did not was never sent, right? Of course, of course they did. Of course yeah. they did. And I think that what happened was Chloe was. I mean, I'm guessing here. Maybe it's the timing of the production of the thing or something. Uh, could have been before. Who knows? Well, I'm trying to give Chloe the benefit of the doubt here. Well, I, I, th- well, well, first of all, her her podcast came out after the after the Bellingcat hoax. So she must have known, I mean, I, or she didn't do proper research. The we, Bellingcat hoax is your term for them claiming that this letter was sent or? They falsely claimed this letter was sent. Of course, they probably thought it was sent, don't you think? Of course they did, but they didn't verify that first. Right. And their, and their source misled them. And the thing right. is, what's funny is that they, when they first put out their article, they claimed that I was misled and played by my sources, when in fact it was their sources that had played them into falsely stating that this letter was sent to Whelan when they went when it wasn't. And I suspect if this text actually was presented to the OPCW director general, I suspect that one of the reasons, one of the reasons they didn't actually send it is because it's so stupid because the text itself is contradicted by the OPCW's final report. You can't say that boronyl chloride proves chlorine gas when your own final report says explicitly that boronyl chloride does not necessarily mean that 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 this wood was exposed to chlorine gas so Mm -hmm. it's just a fundamental contradiction and it also makes this equally ludicrous claim and again which chloe recycles for her podcast which says to me that you know the same uh, sources are playing are using both bellingcat and the bbc that syria and russia had privately admitted that uh they weren't challenging the findings that they basically accepted all the findings of the opcw and Chloe suggests that she's seen this in some kind of secret document. And really, the document she's really is actually referring to is, is public. It's called a note verbal. And it contains Russia and Syria's official responses to the OPCW's final report. And then the OPCW's response to Syria and Russia. And it's all in there. And it shows very clearly that obviously Syria and Russia did not privately admit to guilt. I mean, it's just ludicrous. And, if, mm-hmm. and of course, if they had privately admitted to guilt, then why, why have we spent the last two years talking about this someone could, could have just produced this russian syrian and russian confession but amazingly both uh bellingcat and chloe make this exact same claim and I, mm-hmm. I show in my articles about the bbc podcast and about the bellingcat hoax scam whatever you want to call it why it's just so ridiculous when you quote the actual syrian and russian documents that chloe thinks proves her claim yeah what bothered me one of the, the, the kind of culminating thing that bothered me about leon's uh, the the guy whose pseudonym is Leon's uh, testimony 
was when he says, you know, the OPCW is a very important institution. And these people who are trying to tear it down, I mean, do they want a world where there's no global chemical weapons? Watch that. I mean, listen, I was a crusader for the creation of the OPCW. Okay. I was like writing pieces in support, getting, uh, encouraging our Senate to ratify it. And my view is almost exactly the opposite is that if it's going to be a viable international institution, which it very much needs to be, there's going to have to be transparency. And it's going to have to be subjected to scrutiny. And we're going to have to make sure that its mission can't be corrupted by uh, major powers like the U.S. And there's at least some evidence that that may have happened here. And that's why we need to look into this. And the, you know, the idea that this guy hides behind the sanctity of the OPCW um, to, to, uh, to try to uh, kind of squash an investigation that even the founding director of the OPCW says is in order was kind of annoying. I totally agree. I mean, what Leon says about the importance of the OPCW is true. It's vitally important. The people who should be asking themselves if they want to see it undermined are those who are currently exploiting it to wage warfare on Syria. I mean, that's what this is about. It's being exploited to justify U.S.-led military strikes. And not just that, but also sanctions. When you hear now the U.S. try to justify why we should deprive Syrian kids of food and medicine and why Syrian doctors should have to smuggle into the country parts for dialysis machines and other medical equipment, you hear them say things like the regime uses chemical weapons. So you have the OPCW being compromised to justify a siege. And that is, it's just, it's an outrage. And it's, it's especially tragic in light of what the OPCW has accomplished in Syria. Because seven years ago, after the allegation in Ghouta, and after James Clapper went to Barack Obama and said, the intelligence here is not a slam dunk. That's when all of a sudden Obama had a public change of heart and said, you know what, I'm going to go to Congress. And Obama mm-hmm. has said publicly that this was about he wanted to get congressional authority because he wanted the whole country to be behind him. That's not what it was about. Obama would have happily struck Syria without congressional authority. He, he didn't strike Syria because he was told the intelligence was not there. I think he figured that would eventually come out. The Pentagon also was not with him on this. And so he uh, went to Congress um, knowing that uh, Congress would not vote to authorize strikes, and they never even voted. And he also then took an out from Russia, which organized the destruction of Syria's chemical weapons arsenal with the OPCW. And Mm -hmm. that led to a Nobel Peace Prize for the OPCW. And that was a beautiful moment because it showed the world's top superpowers who were, you know, on opposing sides in Syria – we're actually working together to destroy chemical weapons and achieve this huge milestone for diplomacy. It was amazing. And, now, and the OPCW, I think, should right, rightly get a lot of credit for that. It was a big achievement. Fast forward to now, and now under Trump, you have the OPCW being compromised and manipulated to wage warfare. And you know, there's a line in Jose Bustani's speech, the one he wanted to give to the UN Security Council, but that he was prevented from giving, because the U.S. and their allies blocked him, where he says this. He says, uh, he's talking about his time at the OPCW. And he says, no state party was to be considered above the rest. And the hallmark of the organization's work was the even-handedness with which all member states were treated, regardless of size, political might, or economic clout. So that's Bustani's vision of a multilateral world where countries are equal, and, you know, the big bosses, like, don't run everything like a mafia racket. 
And it's that vision that Bustani is trying to defend because it's now being undermined. Right. And so, you know, for Leon to claim that he somehow favors the OPCW, Leon's a part of a campaign that is undermining the OPCW and may ultimately lead to its collapse because how long are governments going to sit by and watch it being so politicized? It's, you know, it's not tenable. Right. No, people complain uh, that that China used its clout to uh, kind of manipulate some messaging by the World Health Organization. So on. and if that happens, they should complain. I mean, this should not happen. But uh, this is the exact same thing when when uh, whenever, you know, major players are allowed to corrupt the mission of an international institution or there's even significant evidence of that, we should look into it. I, and I actually wrote a thing saying we should look into that. There should be some kind of investigation into the WHO's handling of, uh, of, of the, of the pandemic. Um, the, uh, so, uh, I guess we've, um, anything, anything else you want to say? We've been talking a while. Well, just to add that in my most recent piece for the gray zone, we published some new leaks that showed that before all these public attacks on the inspectors, before, you know, NATO, uh, state ambassadors dismissed them as, you know, rogue, uh, disgruntled ex-employees, and before Bellingcat published a fake letter to try to undermine them, and before Chloe's documentary tried to denigrate them, before all that, as the standoff was happening internally, we published leaks showing that OPCW executives privately praised Dr. Whelan. Um, one of them you know, uh, commended him for standing up for the investigation and protesting the censorship. Another executive wrote to him, because Whelan... And this is a key point. So Whelan wrote the initial report of, of late mm-hmm. June 2018. Right after that, they put out this interim report that's kind of, that sort of watered down, that waters down everything, takes out the unsupported claims, but also leaves out some of the key information from the original report. And then not basically two months later, in early September, Whelan left the OPCW because that was the end of his, of his tenure after you know, his, his second round of duty going back to 19... 98. Um, and so he was gone. And so basically what the interim report was, was basically a stopgap measure to wait him out when the guy who wrote the initial report knows all the facts and who protested the censorship is no longer in the picture. And you have subsequent claims that that's when the bulk of the investigation happened. It's not true at all. You compare the original report to the final report. A lot of the text of the original report is there there's not really much new made uh, progress made in terms of sampling or analysis. It's all pretty much done when Whelan is still in the picture. The difference is that all of the initial findings that undermine claims of the chemical weapons attack uh, that were included in the first report are now gone. They're just, they're excised. They're no longer there. And we wouldn't have known all this if not for all these leaks. So um, the latest leaks that we published at the gray zone include OPCW executives privately praising Whelan, one of them says that, you know, I I totally support you, but the problem with with pursuing this is it would help the Russian narrative, which Mm -hmm. is basically, which is a pretty shocking admission. It's saying that narrative is taking precedence over science. And that even an executive who supports Whelan and recognizes that he was doing the right thing is saying that, you know, there's nothing we can do because we've become essentially subordinate to geopolitics. And we don't want to help the Russian narrative, quote unquote. We'd rather, mm-hmm. I guess, the inference there is we'd rather help the pro-war American narrative. And my point is, the OPCW should not be subordinate to any narrative but science right. and the independence of its own inspectors. 
No, that's a, that's a good note to end on because, you know, I was uh, – so this will probably be posted December 22nd. At first I was thinking, oh, I hate to, like, during the holiday season, uh, post <laughs> something that's all about, you know, mayhem and, and murder and chemical weapons attacks and stuff. Because when I think of, you know, Christmas, I think of, like, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But then I thought, you know, if we ever are going to have peace on earth, we are going to have to learn how to try to transcend narratives and actually get to the bottom of things and – recognize that it's a it's a pretty rare situation in life when there's one side that is all bad and the other side is not at all bad and and um and again that's the the issue i have with the podcast is uh is that she does seem locked into a kind of a monarchian narrative and and i'm not even uh, again i don't know that much about syria i'm not i'm not claiming that, a, that, that there weren't a lot more atrocities committed by Assad than the other side or anything like that. I'm just arguing for like a mode of inquiry that tries to to transcend the kind of Manichaean framing. And I just, I just don't think, I, I don't think this podcast uh, did that. So that would be my, 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 my closing grievance. Um, so people can, uh, People can find you at the gray zone. Your, 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 uh, podcast is pushed back. Your, what are you on Twitter? Aaron J. Matic. Okay. I'm Robert Ryder on Twitter. And this is the right show. Uh, thanks, Aaron. And maybe we'll, we'll, uh, talk to you down the road. Sounds good. Thank you, Bob.